a five-story apartment complex featuring bright airy rooms, attractive art deco detailing, and awe-inspiring views of San Francisco Bay. The former home of a swinging 60s socialite, these luxurious apartments once hosted the most talked-about parties in the Bay Area. That is, until one fateful night, a pissed-off party-goer placed a curse on the property, putting a swift end to the regularly scheduled soirees. The dark Frisco fog settled on the formerly friendly home, leading many to believe it was now harboring an evil entity. Sound like the home for you? Well, if you're in the market for a haunted house, you've come to the right place. I'm Caitlin Blackwell Baines. Welcome to Haunted Homes. One thousand Lombard Street, San Francisco, California. Located at the bottom of the city's most photographed street, a winding switchback famous for a steep one-block section with eight hairpin turns, this historic property is the crown jewel of the exclusive Russian Hill neighborhood. Built in 1909, the elegantly appointed Art Deco apartment building comprises of three spacious units, with a glass roof conservatory, multi-tiered gardens, and balcony terraces. Each apartment offers luxurious living quarters and entertaining spaces that, over the years, have hosted some truly legendary guests, including Andy Warhol, Lana Turner, Frank Sinatra, and Ethel Kennedy, to name just a few. Its best-known resident was Pat Mintanden, a local celebrity, TV presenter, author, and self-professed party girl. During her time living at 1000 Lombard, between 1960 and 1969, she not only hosted dozens of dazzling social events, she also wrote and published How to Be a Party Girl, a guide on how to throw the most fabulous parties, a subject of which she was clearly a bona fide expert. In fact, it was at her San Francisco apartment in 1968 that she hosted her most memorable soiree. It was a party with a theme, astrology, and the guests, including many of San Francisco's social elite, were paired up according to Zodiac sign and offered readings from a palm reader, a crystal ball gazer, an astrologer, and a tarot card reader. The event was a resounding success, except for one small hitch. The fiery-tempered tarot reader got his nose out of joint when Pat failed to bring him his drink in a timely fashion. As Pat tells it, he bolted to his feet and explained loudly that he'd never been so insulted in his life. Quivering with rage, he directed a stream of abuse at me. He fixed me with a glare, his face puffed and distorted. I lay a curse upon you in this house. I do not forget and I do not forgive. Remember that. At first, Pat put the slightly embarrassing episode out of her mind. Not only was she a skeptic, with no time for superstitious nonsense, she was also a serious career woman, riding high in a string of recent success. One disgruntled party guest out of a whole houseful of happy attendees wasn't enough to immediately ruffle her feathers. But then, within a few short months, Pat's previously charmed life was a shambles. Career setbacks, romantic failures, 
and deep depression marred her new existence. At 1000 Lombard Street, she was subjected to supernatural events so unrelenting they quickly transformed her from a skeptic into a believer. She was beset by locked doors and windows opening of their own accord, frigid temperatures that persisted despite the thermostat being turned up to the max. Regular 2am wake-up calls for no reason, and she heard strange music emanating from an unknown source. A song called Mockingbird Hill on repeat. You'll recognize the tune from our intro. It only got worse. Burglary, vandalism, domestic assault, and eventually a series of mysterious deaths of close friends and family members pushed poor Pat to the brink of insanity. Her long-suffering landlord, whom she frequently called out of desperation for some remedy to the calamities unfolding at the house, later stated, That building surely was a voodoo for me. I had nothing but trouble with that property and was glad when I finally sold it in 1973. Nearly half a century later, owners still struggle to sell the home. In 2019, 1000 Lombard was listed at $7.85 million. Yet it ended up selling for just $5.1 million, which for a 12-bedroom, three-story building with breathtaking views of the bay and a prime position at the bottom of the city's most photographed street, seems fairly cheap for San Francisco a town that boasts some of the most expensive real estate in the world. Indeed, there are five-bedroom homes in the area that go for much more. So was the home really cursed by an enraged tarot card reader? Or was it haunted all along? Seeking answers to these questions, Pat wrote an entire book entitled The Intruders, which delves into the disturbing discoveries she made about her former abode. But more on Pat's paranormal property inspection later. First, a little bit about the local area. San Francisco is often regarded as one of America's top cities, much loved for its scenic coastal setting, attractive architecture, and vibrant cultural community. It's no wonder house prices are so high when you consider all it has to offer. 222 public parks, dozens of theaters, performing arts centers and concert venues, a world-class symphony and opera company, and not one but two internationally renowned universities. Stanford, and UC Berkeley. Since the 1990s, the city has also been a hub for internet-based technology companies, which, together with nearby Silicon Valley, draw some of the nation's best and brightest. Indeed, over 50% of San Franciscans have a four-year university degree or higher, creating one of the most educated citizenries in the world. With a population of nearly 1 million, the city covers an area of 47 square miles at the end of the San Francisco Peninsula of Northern California making it the second most densely populated U.S. city after New York, and the fifth most densely populated county in all of America. Despite its relatively small geographic area, San Francisco comprises of a number of distinctly different neighborhoods. The most iconic of which is probably the Haight-Ashbury district in the heart of the city, famous for being a focal point of counterculture in the 1960s. The area retains much of its hippie persona, and residents here enjoy its plethora of smoke shops, independent eateries, art galleries, and murals. The Alamo Square Park area, meanwhile, is known for its rows of brightly colored Victorian houses, called Painted Ladies, much photographed and featured in scores of films and TV shows, including the opening sequences of the popular 1990s family sitcom Full House. Then there's the Knob Hill region, named for one of San Francisco's 44 hills, and known for its high-end hotels, historic mansions, and Michelin-star restaurants. 
The neighborhood is one of the highest income enclaves in America, as well as one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. Just north of Knob Hill is Russian Hill, named for yet another hill, this one the former site of a 19th century Russian cemetery once located on its summit. Throughout the 1800s, Russian naval and merchant ships visited San Francisco, and there are several recorded references to burials of crew members in the Hilltop Cemetery in the first half of the century. The cemetery was eventually removed, but the name persisted. The residential development on the hill started during the California Gold Rush of 1848 to 1855, which brought an eye-watering 300,000 prospectors to Northern California. Construction began in 1853 with three houses on the Vallejo Street crest, one of which, the Atkinson House, is one of the oldest houses still standing in San Francisco. In succeeding years, many more homes followed. However, a great number of these were destroyed in San Francisco's 1906 earthquake, a 7.9 magnitude quake that was followed by a series of devastating fires that would wipe out nearly 80% of the city. Efforts to rebuild the crumbling city were fast and furious, with most of the work complete by 1915. Among the houses erected during this vigorous campaign was 1000 Lombard Street, built in circa 1909 and purportedly first occupied by Vernon Cranston, an attorney, and his wife Sophie. It initially served as a single-family home, which doubled as a treasure house, a museum for Sophie Cranston's collection of rare Asian art. It is believed the couple died at their home of natural causes. Not much else is known about the early history of the house, only that it had been divided into three apartments by 1949. It wasn't until the 1960s when society hostess Pat Montandon came on the scene that 1000 Lombard Street earned its place on San Francisco's cultural map. Pat was a self-made socialite who navigated a meteoric rise from humble beginnings. Born on the 26th of December 1928 to Charles Clay Montandon, a Texan Church of Nazarene minister, and his wife Myrtle Taylor, Pat was raised in Depression-era Texas in Oklahoma. Her parents were poor yet charitable, often putting the needs of their equally impoverished parishioners over those of their own family. Growing up in such an austere environment, the young Pat or Patsy Lou, as she was known to friends and family, likely could never have imagined the glamorous, jet-setting lifestyle she would one day lead on the West Coast. With her silky blonde mane and sparkling blue eyes, beauty would be the key to Pat's success. It was her ticket out of her dreary existence in the Dust Bowl of America. In 1944, at the age of just 16, Pat moved to Dallas to pursue a career as a model. She quickly landed a job modeling for Neiman Marcus, which she just as quickly lost when her pious mother discovered her whereabouts and dragged her across the country to live with relatives on a cherry orchard in rural California. Here, she met the first of her three husbands, U.S. Air Force Captain Howard Groves, the owner of a nearby ranch. Her rebirth as the wife of a wealthy military officer was perhaps the making of Pat, allowing her to throw the first of her many fabulous parties and to live a lifestyle far beyond what she had grown up accustomed to, but after 12 years of marriage, Pat had outgrown this life too. In 1960, she divorced her first husband and moved to San Francisco, where she marched into the executive offices of the high-end Joseph Magnin department store and demanded a job modeling for them. She got it and soon after was promoted to manager of their store in Lake Tahoe, where she purportedly dated none other than Frank Sinatra. Returning to San Francisco, Pat started seeing prominent Bay Area lawyer Melvin Belly, whom she married in a Shinto ceremony in Japan in 1966. Her second marriage ended more swiftly, 
lasting less than a year, with a discovery that old Mel was an unrelenting boozer and womanizer. And yet, despite the fact that, by the age of 38, Pat had two divorces under her belt, she was still riding high. She parlayed her local celebrity as a party host into the role of a TV host at the ABC affiliate KGO. She also became society editor of The Examiner and scored a book deal with McGraw-Hill. All the while, Pat was living in her luxurious apartment on Lombard Street, which, prior to the night of her fateful party in 1968, had been nothing but a happy home for the glamorous and successful divorcee. The first sign of trouble came on an evening just two weeks after the tarot card reader cast his supposed curse. Pat had spent the afternoon shopping downtown with a friend and returned to her home shortly after dark. I had a feeling as I started up the stairs that something strange was in the air, she recalls. The front door opening into the foyer was unlocked, although it was always closed by a deadbolt, and my own front door, which gave access to the living room, was ajar. She found her home completely ransacked, with jewellery, a mink coat, a television set, and a tiger-skin rug discovered to be missing. Of course, I'm not suggesting a connection between the break-in and the tarot man's threats, Pat clarifies, but imperceptibly, a series of happenings, some actual, others less tangible, began to shake my confidence. I do remember one thing, though, that particularly disturbed me, she says. After the burglary, there was a penetrating chill about the house. Try as I might, I could not get it warm. I would turn the heat up, and even with the heat, I would still feel the cold. Friends who came to see me would often ask why I had turned the thermostat up to 90, and I would have no easy explanation, although later on I would notice they too would shiver and make some remark about my living room facing north. Repeated appeals to the landlord to fix what Pat assumed was a broken boiler did not help. He sent out technicians on multiple occasions, all of whom claimed the heating system was working just fine. There is something evil about cold, asserts Pat. Fire is frightening, but a coldness that comes without warning, bringing with it a pervasive sense of gloom and depression, has a more insidious effect, and the others noticed it did not add to my comfort, she admits. Then the 2am wake-up started. On one occasion, as Pat lay shivering in her bed, awake as usual in the early hours of the morning, she heard an unfamiliar whimpering sound. On inspection, she found her pet Lassa Apso, imaginably named Dog, whining desperately to be let in from the back porch where he always slept. Dog's strange behavior only got stranger. He was consistently waking up at 2am like his owner, and had become so distraught he began to gnaw and worry his fur until he had chewed bare's patches into sores. Bizarrely, however, whenever he was away from their home, Dog returned to his ordinary, happy self. Eventually, Pat had to rehome him. All alone in her apartment, Pat felt worse than ever. A naturally sparky and social creature, she had transformed into a dour recluse almost overnight. Her friends suggested she get a roommate, and although she had always valued her independence and in the past would have shuddered at the thought of sharing her space with another, she was now a bit more open to it. In fact, she found herself greatly relieved when her young 23-year-old cousin Carolyn asked if she could stay with her for a while. At first, having a house guest brought Pat great comfort, but soon her cousin was simply another witness to the increasingly frightening events occurring in her apartment. Late one evening, not long after Carolyn's arrival, I was awakened by the sound of music, recalls Pat. It was oddly insistent and annoying. I lay in my bed, listening to the repeated ornamentation of a long-forgotten tune. It wasn't particularly loud, but its persistence was unnerving. She lay in bed listening to the irritating sound for a time, and then, 
Realizing she would never be able to fall back asleep until she discovered its source, she launched herself out of bed and began a search. I was dismayed to see all the lights on and Carolyn prowling about, also bent on discovering where the annoying music was coming from, Pat says. You sure do have inconsiderate neighbours, Carolyn remarked. The music went on and on, like a record player with no reject, and it repeated endlessly the same tune out of some dim memory I recalled its name, Mockingbird Hill, a funny old song. This was a 1951 hit for bubblegum pop singer Patti Page. Years later, Pat would learn that a former tenant of the apartment, an alcoholic aspiring actress, had committed suicide with the same song playing on repeat on a record player, an oddly cheerful tune for a death requiem. After bouts of severe illness, a violent encounter with a romantic partner, and a long period of depression, Pat finally decided, with the encouragement of friends, to throw another party. Her first since the hexed horoscope party. This time, the theme would be an Indian bazaar, with sitar music, burning incense, and a buffet of exotic delicacies to tempt the guests. Finding all the necessary props and provisions did not absorb me as it always had in the past, Pat laments. I was deeply troubled, without consciously pinpointing the reason, and I could not give the arrangements my usual care or attention. Yet somehow, the plans were made, the guests were invited. When the night of the party finally arrived, everything seemed to be in order. Guests poured into Pat's apartment wearing sumptuous silk saris and other imaginative costumes that nodded to the Eastern inspiration of the event. All was going well, the partygoers appeared to be in a cheerful mood, but then, about two hours in, Pat heard someone shout out, FIRE! In an instant, the steady pulse of talk and laughter became jangled and out of phase. The escapist fantasy of the evening came to a halt, Pat remembers. I rushed to the doorway of the library to see flames shooting up from the awning on the balcony outside, and tongues of flame already beginning to lick at the wooden trim of the building. This would be the last party that Pat would throw at 1000 Lombard Street. The end of a sparkling era. Now it was all darkness and fog. Pat knew now that she simply had to get out. And despite the fact that she still had more than a year left on her lease at Lombard Street, she made her escape. She married her third and final husband, Alfred Wisely, a dairy product mogul come real estate developer, and left her hexed home for good. After Pat relocated to her marital home, the Lombard flat was left vacant, and so when her best friend and personal secretary, Mary Lou Ward, asked if she could move in, Pat reluctantly agreed. Are you sure you want to, Mary Lou? I wouldn't go back on a bet, Pat said. Mary Lou just laughed it off. But perhaps she should have heeded her friend's warning. On the 21st of June, 1969, Pat received a call in the early hours of the morning that would leave her reeling. Is this Pat Montandon? came an authoritative male voice. A police officer. Yes, she confirmed. Are you the lady who lived on Lombard Street? She confirmed this too. There was a fire there early this morning and we have a female body. Can you tell me who it is? His words stabbed into my consciousness with the force of a sharp blade, Pat remembers. Her best friend, Mary Lou, had died in the fire. Or at least that's what it at first appeared. A fire inspection, a coroner's report, a police investigation, and a death inquest posed more questions than they answered. For it seems that Mary Lou had in fact died before the fire broke out, as evidenced by the fact there was no trace of smoke inhalation. The coroner was deeply perplexed. Dr. Turkle stated at the inquest, I should explain that we have examined Mary Louise Ward as carefully as we know how and at great length, 
and we cannot establish any reason for her death. She did suffer severe burns, and we believe she was apparently dead when these burns did occur, but we don't know why she died. One would assume that if Mary Lou did not die from the fire, and was a perfectly healthy woman otherwise, then surely some sort of foul play occurred prior to the fire. And yet, all evidence points to the fact that she was entirely alone at the time of her death. The fire brigade had to break down the double-bolted doors both to the apartment itself and to the bedroom where she was found. Now, if this was an isolated, unexplained, yet tragic death, Pat might have been able to move past it. However, in relatively quick succession, her cousin, Carolyn, and another employee who had briefly stayed with her at 1000 Lombard also died, both by suicide. It should be noted that Carolyn had told Pat that for months after she vacated the Lombard house, she continued to hear Mockingbird Hill peeling through the air at night. All these things combined led Pat on an obsessive quest to try to find out what exactly was happening at 1000 Lombard Street. Her findings were frustratingly inconclusive. With the permission of the new tenants, she invited a team of psychics to investigate the apartment. They came back with a series of photos featuring strange nebulous shapes and a list of names with a strong attachment to the apartment. Pat then interviewed a number of past residents and found that, in fact, even years before the tarot card reader's curse, there seemed to be a pall of sadness that hung over the property. Divorces, depression, alcoholism, and suicide were a plague in the former occupants. But the cause for all the misery remained elusive. It's equally unclear whether the curse remained active after Pat's tenure. A steady succession of tenants moved in and out of 1000 Lombard Street over the years, with no further reports of paranormal activity. It remained under the same ownership for nearly five decades until 2019, when it went on the market for nearly $8 million, but failed to obtain anything close to its asking price. Why? Well, maybe it is just plain curse. Are you looking for a room with a view? A view of the iconic Golden Gate Bridge? Are you after a posh pad perfect for all your fabulous parties? Well, if you don't mind a creeping cold damp and some late night noise disturbance in the form of a cloying 1950s pop tune, then 1000 Lombard Street just might be the home for you. We do recommend you keep a few fire extinguishers on hand. And kisses the roses round my windowsill Then my heart fills with gladness When I hear the trill Of the birds in the treetops On Mockingbird Hill Tra-la-la, twiddly-dee-dee It gives me a thrill To wake up in the morning To the mockingbird's trill Tra-la-la, there's peace and goodwill. You're welcome as the flowers on the skin.